From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. We don't always get to defeat the bad guy in in our stories, and yet with new knowledge, we can come to a new place that could be redemptive and interesting for us. But I do think there are times when we need that happily ever after kind of moment. And so I don't want to discard them altogether. You know, in answer to your question about story that we want to wrestle with, I really want to wrestle on those deeper levels and see where is hope lurking in these stories. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted to welcome back to the show... Marianne McKibben-Dana. She's a writer, pastor, speaker, and ministry coach living in Virginia. She's the author of God, Improv, and the Art of Living and Sabbath in the Suburbs. Longtime listeners will recall that we've had her on the show before. We're delighted to welcome her back again. Reverend Marianne McKibben-Dana, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. So today we're talking about your recent book, Hope, a User's Manual. And I'm going to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. It's a couple of years ago, and you are in your daughter's bedroom, and she is curled up on the bed, and she's having an anxiety attack, and you're doing your best to soothe her. And then at one moment in kind of exasperation or exhaustion, the soothing words stop, and you just say, honey, I know it's hard right now. And things start to go from anxious with your daughter to starting to get a little bit better. And I wonder if you'd take us back to that moment and what was going on then, and what you learned from that. Mm. Thanks for the chance to go back to that moment, which I wrote about in the book, as well as so many others, about our experience of walking with Caroline in the midst of what turned out to be a very long and debilitating depression and anxiety journey, as you mentioned. And I remember that moment well, and As much as I and my husband, we've both kind of felt that we want to allow our kids to feel what they feel. We loved reminding them of that old free to be you and me. It's all right to cry and to have those kinds of, you know, real honest emotions when you're dealing with something as profoundly debilitating as a depression, it raises all of your own anxieties as a parent. And I realized how easy it is to lapse into it's going to be okay language, reassurance, platitudes. And I've often known intellectually that people are doing that out of a desire to help. They, they're tender hearted. They want to be compassionate. And that's why they kind of grab onto those, even as I know that that is almost never helpful. But going through that with Caroline helped me realize just how tempting that is. And how often it is when we go to reassurance, it's really about assuaging our own sense of comfort. We're really trying, without realizing it, to make ourselves feel better. 
And in that moment, I, I wish I could say that I realized that that was happening and shifted. But really, I had just run out of arguments. I'd run out of ways to reassure. And I just simply said, that sounds really hard. And I imagine there may have been a little bit of exasperation in my voice because I was just, I got nothing. <laughs> I'm all out. And perhaps it's just grace itself that gave those words just enough authenticity or compassion or genuineness that Caroline was able to hear them as, finally, I have been heard. Finally, my mother is not trying to talk me out of this feeling. So it was formative and it reminded me of a lot of things I knew up in my head and needed to internalize more deeply. I'm really grateful for your trusting me and my audience with that story right off the bat. And I wanted to start there because I think that it really gets to the heart of what I'm hearing you saying throughout your book, Hope, A User's Manual. And that is hope is not something Pollyanna. It's not a sticker that we slap on top of something. It is not a kind of great denial of the events that are happening, but rather, if I'm hearing correctly what you're saying, not just in this story about your daughter, Caroline, but in many of the stories that you tell us throughout your book, hope begins with an honest appraisal of the way things are in this moment, even when those things are horrible. Now, as I say that, I'm paraphrasing, I'm using my words. What have I got right and what would you say differently? I think you're right, right on the right track there. And it's funny, the last time you and I talked in this capacity was when God, Improv, and the Art of Living came out. And there are so many echoes of that book in this one. And part of what improv is built around, as we talked about last time, is this idea of yes and, which is receiving the, what the world offers us and building on it in some way. And what the world offers is often not what we would have chosen. We may not like it. So saying yes doesn't mean yay, this is great. It just means this is what is. And what do we do now? And so I think that, you know, I, I can trace in some ways how I got from the Sabbath book to the improv book, and certainly the improv book to the hope book, because hope is really built on an appraisal of life as it is. I talk about the difference between hope and optimism. And I think hope can exist regardless of the facts. It can exist because it is an ethic and a way of being in the world. And I think that really can help us move in some really important ways beyond mere optimism. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Marianne McKibben-Dana. She's a writer, pastor, speaker, and ministry coach living in Virginia. She's the author of God, Improv, and the Art of Living and Sabbath in the Suburbs. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Hope, a user's manual. Well, what I really like about the structure of your book, Hope, a user's manual, is it moves through a kind of what to me I took to be a counterintuitive journey. Because instead of starting out in good academic fashion, defining what we're talking about, you spend a good deal of the first portion of the book talking about what hope isn't. And it's not, as I said before, a sticker that you put on. It's not Pollyanna. It's not pie in the sky. But I wonder what was it that took you to that place to say, we need to clear some land before we start planting this particular field. Talk me through that thought process. That's great. I was just talking to someone last night who had just finished the book, and he said, it's almost like you put hope kind of in the middle of this arena and sort of shine light on it from a lot of different perspectives. 
And I think the reason why I wanted to start with some deconstruction is because, precisely because, I think in our American culture, although certainly people from around the world can access the book and experience it, but I think there's some distinctly American features that we need to see clearly and in some ways disrupt those narratives, those, you know, those bumper stickers, as you say, the Pollyanna-ish. I think the United States as a culture is a, a pretty optimistic one, and that has served us well in a lot of ways. But there is certainly a shadow side with from manifest destiny to colonialism, all kinds of unintended or intended consequences of this charge into the future, city on a hill kind of thinking. And for me, I when I was faced with this experience with Caroline, even going through COVID the last several years of our own kind of American story, I needed something more. I needed something deeper. And writers write the book that they would like to read. And I really wanted to have something that really came at that mythology head on and took it apart a bit. Well, and I think that's important because there are several points in this first part of your book where you're talking about what hope isn't. One of the things that was most profound for me was when you said, and I'm, again, I'm going to paraphrase, but basically hope is not a two plus two equals four kind of equation where if you do everything right and if you have, if you've cleaned the dishes and if you've combed your hair, then you've got a reason to hope because good things will naturally follow. Instead, you allowed that kind of expectation, that kind of, if you will, that kind of Psalm 1 expectation that if we do everything according to the righteous law, then righteousness will naturally follow. You allow that to be disrupted, even to use your word deconstructed. And I'm wondering about what it felt like, how was it liberating to you to let yourself out of that kind of narrative of cause and effect how did that begin to set a stage where you could actually begin to talk about your own experience of hope? But before we get to that experience, I want to know about what it was like to be like, we don't have to talk about the Psalm 1 universe where the good naturally follows from righteous actions. Fantastic question. You know, honestly, the first thing that came to my mind is how liberating it was to let go of the two plus two equals four, which I think of as I'm in the Presbyterian flavor of Christianity. And we don't really track very much in the prosperity gospel. It's not a big part of our theology, but you can't avoid picking up elements of that along the way, living in our own culture of, I do things right and expect things to work out pretty well for me. And having done that, been a very careful and thoughtful parent and thought I, I've inoculated my kids from certain things and I really should not have ever thought were in my control as thoughtful as I try to be as a parent, there are just certain things that are out of your control. And so it was just simply a more honest way of being to decouple myself from that. But also, one of the refreshing things about this book and that I really sought to do, even acknowledging my place as a middle, upper middle class white woman living in the suburbs, is there are different ways of understanding hope that are informed by different social location, by race, and I remember hearing, and I lift up a number of these voices in the book, but I remember hearing a presentation by Miguel de la Torre, who I quote many times, an ethicist, a Cuban Christian, and he wrote a book called Embracing Hopelessness. And, and his ethic is hope can be used to pacify and, you know, just wait for the sweet by and by, everything's going to be okay. And 
our missionary project has really tracked in that theology too much as Western Christians who sort of evangelize the world. And I think we're coming to terms with that in some healthy ways. But in the meantime, hope uh, can actually keep people pacified and inactive because, you know, the message is, hold on, everything's going to work out for you in when kingdom come, you know, and and his ethic is more around how do I act now in a way that is purposeful, that is in line with my values, and that is in solidarity with those who do not have hope anymore. So he finds a lot of motivation in desperation. When there are no options left, that is when we have the most agency. We are most willing to act. And I was blown away by that and and realized how much of my own sense of hope is just simply life's going to work out okay because it already always has for me. And that is not the case for a lot of us. And I think there's a lot of resources for white Christianity and, and white thinking in general to be open to these other voices. And there's much to learn there. I really appreciated what you did with Miguel de la Torre's thought. And there's one point where you are quoting him and he says basically what you've just said. When I have lost all hope, when I have nothing left to lose. And he says something there that fascinated me. He said, that's when I'm at my most dangerous. And immediately you take that at face value and then you interpret it for the reader, what he, what you understand him meaning by being at his most dangerous. Would you walk us through that for my listeners? Yeah, I, I really want to have a conversation with him someday. And I'm also afraid to because, you know, he's such a, I mean, he's a, a very warm and loving, inclusive person and teaches people in seminary all the time. But I hope that I have kept the sharpness and the prophetic incisiveness of his words intact, but also contextualize them for, in the presentation that I saw, he said, I'm not talking to the white people in this room. I'm really talking to the people of color in this room and you get to listen in, lucky you. And I did consider myself quite lucky to have been a a witness to that. But but in, in, in essence, what I understand of his work, and he's very careful to say, I'm not speaking for all communities of color. There are many that have a real grounding in hope. And I think that, you know, he, but he said, I offer this. And if it is a, if it is resource, if it resonates with you, take it and, and with my blessing. But the idea is that when we let go of the idea of hope, that everything's going to work out okay, when that is so antithetical to our own experience, when what we are witnessing with our own eyes and ears and senses is that doesn't happen. Asking people to be hopeful is a great burden because they just don't have that. So what are the other resources that De La Torre finds helpful? And one of those is, again, this idea of desperation. I'm going to misquote, but the the Warson Shire poem about, you know, someone doesn't get into the water unless the land they're leaving behind was more dangerous, right? That desperation of the refugee, that those who are fleeing to another place, that's desperation. If it's hope, it's a particularly inflected kind of hope. And so my understanding of of De La Torre and similar thinkers is when I've got no options left, he uses the word dangerous. I understand that as this is where I'm the most purposeful, the most committed, the, the, the most willing to risk. You know, when I think about our world and how we are holding on to democracy with a thread by a thread, it seems like sometimes, and 
Climate change is looming. This is not a climate change book, but I hope that it is received by those who read it as having something helpful to say. We need to find all the agency and motivation we can to act in the midst of that. And if hope fuels that, great. If it doesn't, then let's find other ways. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Marianne McKibben-Dana. She's a writer, pastor, speaker, and ministry coach living in Virginia. We're talking today about her recent book, Hope, a User's Manual. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of discussions and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Marianne McKibben-Dana. She's a writer, pastor, speaker, and ministry coach living in Virginia. She's the author of God, Improv, and the Art of Living and Sabbath in the Suburbs. Today, we're talking about her most recent book, Hope, a User's Manual. Well, you had talked before about the progression from your book on improv to this book on hope. And I was thinking of that at a couple of points where you talk about leading workshops on improv for various types of groups of people around the Virginia area. And there was one in particular that stuck out to me. You were you were talking to a group in, I believe, Washington, D.C., and there was a man in the audience who was interacting with you. And he said, yeah, this improvisation, this being open to the yes and the unknown future is all well and good to talk about when you don't know what's happening. But it's our job to basically control the future. And the word that comes out of that for you is future proofing things. I was fascinated by the desire of, let's name it, a white man to say my job and my goal is to create a known future where nothing unexpected will ever happen again. And I'd just like to invite you to meditate on that moment with me and my listeners for a little bit here. Yeah, that's such an important lens to put that on. And yes, he, this particular congregation, like many in the D.C. area where I live, has a number of folks who work for, as we call them, the three-letter agencies, the kind of ones where they are a little cagey when they you ask them what they do. They say, I work for the government. And I will admit my own uh, complicated feelings in this. When it comes to safety and security, there's a part of me that wants him to have every bit of information he needs in order to transact his work and to be able to anticipate as much as possible. Interestingly, that conversation up to that point had been about what happens when life throws you curveballs in your personal life. It really was about the unexpected illness, the divorce, the job loss. And so I, I really remember that kind of lens and that context to that comment that he was, I think, talking about his work. And yet I think we all 
you've maybe heard the term of dress rehearsing tragedy. I think that's a Brene Brown expression where she talks about, let's be sure to anticipate and how that leads to, I think, a way of living our lives that it doesn't feel abundant. It doesn't feel joyful. It just feels like we're bare knuckling and kind of don't nobody move. You know, anything could go wrong at any moment. So I feel a lot of sympathy for that. But I also, yes, I think part of why I found listening to other voices of communities of color, marginalized communities so refreshing is when you think of something, for example, as all-encompassing as climate change, I think even someone in that position of that gentleman in that class, that's in some ways beyond him as well. It's beyond any one of us. And we need something more solid to hold on to rather than if we just control things, have enough power, do our work, you know, we can forestall the worst of anything that we can imagine. Life is just infinitely more creative at ways to throw us for a loop. So I think it's a, a real resource and an asset to, to look at some other ways of being in a world as complex as ours. Well, and I want to stick with this for a moment. Because when I read that particular passage of your book, Hope, A User's Manual, what came to my mind was the philosopher Hannah Arendt. And in her analysis of the kind of sweep of the 20th century and how politics went so drastically wrong, particularly in the middle of the 20th century, part of what she came up with was there are two ways to sort of look at the future. And one is the controlled future, where we know that we're going to put in this number of resources and we're going to get this number of widgets out. And she called that the kind of economic future. And then she said, then there's the kind of future where you put in a bunch of variables and you don't quite know what's going to come out because you're not dealing with widgets, you're dealing with human beings. And she called that a political future. And so she had a very interesting way of thinking about politics as a way of engaging with the unknown outcome. What strikes me about that is this person who was sitting in the congregation was talking about the kind of economic future that Arendt was analyzing, wanting to say, I'm going to put in this number of inputs and I'm going to get this number of widgets out. And he was terrified of the political future. Now, when I bring this in, it strikes me that the economic is the realm of hopelessness if I'm understanding correctly how you're thinking about these things. Whereas when we are open to the openness of the future, that's where hope can actually exist. Am I understanding that correctly or would you say it in a different way? I love that. And what it made me think of, and maybe it's a, here's my own yes and into the conversation, which I think is informed by what you're saying. And this question helps me realize the extent to which Tim Snyder's book on tyranny which I have read repeatedly over the last several years, informed this book because for people who don't know, it's just one of those that it's a slim little book that I reread every year or so, but it's 20 lessons from the 20th century. And he's very informed by Hannah Arendt's work. And he talks about these kinds of ways of being that can fight the sort of tyrannical or authoritarian impulses that are so bubbling up around the world. Anyway. He talks about, and I, I imagine that he's probably informed by Arendt in this, two ways of looking at history, the politics of inevitability and the politics of eternity. And the idea behind the politics of inevitability is we're on a trajectory as a culture. We are progressing in a certain way, and we are going to continue doing that. And it's this general, the future is going to resemble the past, that philosophical idea. 
And I think that's a little of what this gentleman that we're thinking about is operating within. We know how to be in the world and we keep doing that and we'll get similar results. And I think what my work around hope and my understanding of how we think about hope helps us do is decouple that past and future and say we aren't necessarily on a trajectory. And and I think that's the difference between hope and optimism. You know, optimism understands that we're kind of headed in a certain direction. The evidence is pointing that way. And so we really don't need to have, we can be in a kind of autopilot as opposed to always being willing to kind of have our hand on the controls. And the politics of inevitability, I think, can keep us stuck. And I think our hopelessness in the same way that you are describing in Aaron's work, if I'm understanding your analogy, which I think makes a lot of sense. Well, and this is really helpful to me, and I'm not familiar with Tim Snyder's work on tyranny, but now that you've mentioned it, I'm going to go and take a look at it. But uh, what you brought into the conversation, I think, is exactly what I was trying to get at, this notion of inevitability, this notion that if we are putting things together in the right sequence, we will get a guaranteed outcome. At the beginning of our conversation, we talked about the logic of Psalm 1, where the righteous are like trees planted by clear water, and they will grow and they will flourish, and the unrighteous will perish because that's the kind of ordered universe that we live in. But as you and I know, writers like Walter Brueggemann will take that and say, yeah, but there are other Psalms that then rearrange that and say, sometimes the unrighteous flourish and the righteous are the ones who are perishing. And we have to be able to deal with that logic and still have hope and still be able to say God is God and still be able to say these other kind of things that we're called to say, again, not in a Pollyanna kind of way, not in a denying reality way, but affirming even in the midst of things falling apart. And here's the big blank that we're filling in, you know, because we are so trained, it feels like, in our culture to live in that economic model, to live in that two plus two equals four model, that it's almost like you are gesturing towards a shadow here to something that doesn't quite have a firm shape in our thinking. Now, again, when I'm saying it that way, I want to make sure that I'm not falling away from your intention. Because when I say it that way, I'm characterizing you as doing a, almost a conjuring here, where you're invoking some shape that is yet to come, some, something slouching towards us or whatever. Maybe it's much more concrete for you, but I, I'd, I'd like to invite you to talk to us about either the shapelessness or the shape of hope, given our conditioned thinking. That's so beautiful. So here's a concrete example of finding our way in that kind of shape and shapelessness. And it goes back to, again, to this book on tyranny, which again, has just become like a touchstone for me. He talks about these different ways of being that can provide some resistance against this kind of anti-freedom, anti-democratic, authoritarian kind of impulses. And what I love about the book is that they're very concrete and they are what I would consider things it takes to be just a good citizen. Investing in institutions or taking care with our language, meeting people's eye. One of his is take responsibility for the face of the world. You know, when you see graffiti somewhere, you clean it up. Again, in a kind of shape, the the shapelessness of our world, it can be so hard sometimes to even know what is the next right thing. But there's a real shape to that. Just a real concretizing of what it means to, to be a good citizen in the world that I find very comforting. 
one of my favorite sections of the book. And I can't wait to get the feedback from people about it because it, it might be one of those that that people enjoy but have a hard time c- connecting with concretely because it, it, to me, it's still an idea that I'm working with is the idea of hope as living within a story. So there's a whole set, there's six sections of the book. The fourth section, I believe, is called Hope Travels in Story. And I just really have been captivated by the idea of if hope is not two plus two equals four, if it's not an equation and it's not put this input in and get this output, then what is it? And I think I really love and am captivated as a Christian who is thinking about the Christian narrative that we are living within, thinking about hope as a story. It's with a beginning, middle, and end. And and in some ways we are caught in the, we're always in the middle. I was listening just this morning to a podcast about Rings of Power, this new Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien show that is out right now. And they were quoting, I think, from The Two Towers and Sam saying, but all good tales go on. Uh, Sort of there's an idea that good stories never end. They are kind of perpetually, we're perpetually within them. So when I think about, again, back to your question about shapelessness and shape, what I like about the idea of thinking about hope as a narrative is there is a shape to it. We kind of understand the patterns of a story, but what happens within those is delightfully and sometimes alarmingly open-ended and and unpredictable. I really enjoyed that part of the book, and it's, it's probably the least concrete part of it. It's really the most kind of theoretical and conceptual, but I just loved writing it because I think stories give our lives such shape and purpose. Well, and there was something that you did right at the beginning of that section on story that really hit me profoundly because you start off with a little epigraph like you do with every section and you're talking about confirmation you know what where a teenager is coming into the church and the takeaway from that is we're not saying that this is the story that you have to believe for the rest of your life rather you are promising now to wrestle with this story for the rest of your life i'd love to hear why that epigraph was placed there and how that informs what you were just telling us about the open-endedness of story. Yeah, I I love that example. That's an example from Lauren Winner. I want to give credit to her in, in, in one of her books. Interestingly, a book about, I think, Finding Hope, still notes from a mid-faith crisis, I think is the name of it. I'm so captivated by this idea as I have grown and been a member of this a part of this Christian tradition for many decades now. My own beliefs have changed over time. I've returned to some things that I had discarded at different times. But what remains, and I don't even want to call it constant because it's a story, so it's dynamic, but the through line in it all is this is the story that gives color and texture to my spiritual life, my physical life. And that to me is tremendously powerful. I mean, we are a storytelling people. And so to think about hope as something that is woven within our stories and going back to what you said about Psalm 1 and Walter Brueggemann's work around the idea of being in a kind of sense of orientation and then disorientation and then we're in a new place. There was one of my favorite little sections, and there are, each section has a lot of little subsections, and it is from a science fiction writer named Ted Chang who talked about conservative versus progressive stories. And I think this is an interesting lens through which to understand hope. And, and he doesn't use those terms in a partisan way. 
But in a conservative story, the world starts out as a good place, evil intrudes, evil is defeated, and the world goes back to being a good place. So Psalm 1 is an example of that, right? The good guys win, the bad guys lose. Great. A progressive story is the world starts out as a familiar place. That familiarity is disrupted, and then the world is never the same. It comes to a different place. I I really wrestle in the book about whether does hope reside in both of those kinds of stories? Of course, I find myself a little more drawn to progressive ones because I think they're more realistic, they're more interesting. We don't always get to defeat the bad guy in, in our stories, and yet with new knowledge, we can come to a new place that could be redemptive and interesting for us. But I do think there are times when we need that happily ever after kind of moment. And so I don't want to discard them altogether. You know, in answer to your question about story that we want to wrestle with, I really want to wrestle on those deeper levels and see where is hope lurking in these stories. One thing that strikes me, and I appreciate you bringing in this piece that you wrote in your book about conservative and progressive types of stories, because I that really resonated with me, too. I think that as Americans, since we've been talking about how we are enculturated to think of ourselves constantly as the heroes of the story. And part of, I think, becoming more hopeful in the Miguel de la Torre way is to step out of the center and realize that other people might be the heroes of the story and that we might be side players. And that's a really disorienting shift in perspective. It, it doesn't fit well with the conservative style of storytelling, but it does fit well with the progressive one because the known world is disoriented and our world is never the same if we're able to take ourselves out of the center, out of being the heroes of the story. But as I say that to you, I wonder what you think about that. I'm going back to our conversation a little earlier about the gentleman who works for one of the three-letter agencies. And he very much, I mean, I think that what that story illuminates for us is how seductive and pervasive that idea is, that we are the authors of our stories. When George Floyd was murdered a couple of years ago in this conversation that I think has been going on, but it kind of reached a new height around our nation's kind of racial reckoning, is really a a contending between these two kinds of stories. And are we a nation where we're the city on the hill and maybe we've had some obstacles along the way, but we want to return to that sense of, I mean, make America great again is a return, right? And that doesn't mean that there aren't other stories that can follow that pattern that, that aren't inflected in that way, but that's a story that we've certainly seen a lot. These categories, uh, I think, it helped me to have a sense of perspective for this is really, we're not just arguing about the story, but we're arguing about the type of story. And I find progressive stories very redemptive. And thinking about who is the protagonist, to lift up other voices to say, our nation understands itself a certain way. And what would it mean? And how would it enrich us? Because I believe that it would to Think about other voices telling it, having other protagonists in it. And I think that's a powerful potential resource for us. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Marianne McKibben-Dana. She's a writer, pastor, speaker, and ministry coach living in Virginia. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Hope, a User's Manual. We'll be back in just a moment. 
Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of discussions and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Marianne McKibben-Dana. She is a writer, pastor, speaker, and ministry coach living in Virginia. She's the author of the books God, Improv, and the Art of Living, and Sabbath in the Suburbs. We've had her on the show before to talk about both of those books, and today she's here talking about her most recent book, Hope, a User's Manual. Well, in the last segment, we were talking about stories and the importance of stories, and that draws me back to where we began our conversation. Because in that moment with your daughter, Caroline, when she was feeling an anxiety attack, you were doing what I think every parent wants to do, which is to kind of re-narrate her sadness into happiness, to say there's a better story there for you if you can just let go of whatever it is that you're holding on to and just come on to the lifeboat of the story that I'm giving you. That wasn't working. And what began to actually bring pardon the phrasing, but a glimmer of hope in that moment of anxiety was when you stopped trying to re-narrate her story and instead just acknowledged the story that she had. It sounds like that's really tough. And even if there was some annoyance in your voice, as you said earlier, something about that began to break through for her and she began to find some solid footing. So I'd like to invite you, first of all, to consider the characterization I've just given, because that's my narration of your experience, and I may have it wrong, and I'm willing to be corrected, absolutely. But if I am correct in some way, or if you'd like to rephrase it in some way, I'm interested in expanding that out, that insight into the desire to control somebody's story versus allowing stories to be wild, if you will. Beautiful question. Two things come to mind. The first thing that I think of is some of the kind of research I did around hope and how different thinkers and philosophers and the psychological kind of community thinks of hope reminds me of this story. I hadn't put these two together. When you have a lot of little mini reflections in your book, sometimes it's fun to see, oh, something I put in chapter four actually impacts reflection number 30. But I believe his name is Charles Snyder, talked about the components of hope and what we need in order to have hope. And he talks about two kinds of thinking. There's pathway thinking and there's agency thinking. And so the third is that you need to have some kind of basic goal in mind, something that you're trying to achieve. But pathway thinking essentially says, I can imagine a lot of different ways to get to where I want to go. Those are the pathways. So you can Imagine if I want to run a marathon, I may join a gym or I may join a running group, lots of different pathways. And then the second is agency thinking, which is I have what it takes to do that. So we'll reach out to someone on Facebook to to be an accountability buddy or those different things. So and we need both of those. And I say that recognizing that going back to our conversation earlier about different social locations, again, that's easy for some people to have if you have the pathway and the agency because you can make things happen. When you are lacking in resources in your own social location, you know, due to racial animus against you, that's going to be harder to come by. So we, we need to hold that a little bit lightly. But going back to Caroline, I think what I gave her the ability to do in that moment is to have, I think, that moment was about agency, was about 
can't I just say that this is hard <laughs> without anyone trying to talk me out of that, right? And the meaning that we make of our own experience, as, as many have said before me much more eloquently, is is our own no one can take that away from us. And I think sometimes when we try to narrate other people's story, we do end up taking that away from them. The second thing that comes to mind is another section of the book that that was enjoyable to write and a growing edge for me, and I think maybe will push people a little bit, is thinking about hope as something that lives within our body. You know, we, we often think of hope as a feeling or as something we think, or we analyze the data and we think, okay, things are going to work out okay. But hope is really, it lives in these imperfect, flawed, fleshy bodies of ours. And I was reading and researching about how we process trauma. And one of the things that happens when we go through a traumatic experience is we aren't able to tell our story in a different way. We relive what happened and that story in, in essence gets retold in our bodies the same way again and again and we get stuck. And so part of what we experienced in our journey with Caroline, but also in all of the kind of traumas over the last couple of years that so many of us have experienced is how do we get out of telling the same story in the same way and telling it in a, in a way that is purposeful, that has agency, that is maybe even redemptive, though we don't want to get there too quickly or too easily. And many of us need professional help to do that. And that's important, but part of it is a storytelling function. That's part of what healing, how healing happens. One thing that strikes me as I'm hearing you saying this about the healing and the agency, it makes me think of actually a speech by Pope Francis to the United Nations back in 2016. And there's been a line from that speech that has been really ringing out for me lately. And he says, it is part of our duty, part of what we who have resources are here to do is to create the opportunity for the vulnerable and the poor to have the agency of their own dignity. In other words, to not give them dignity or say, here's an off-the-shelf version, but rather to support them in working it out for themselves. And I wonder when I say that quotation to you, how does that land with you? It makes me think of a section, little piece of the book where I quote Austin Channing Brown, who is a Black woman, activist, writer, and after Jacob Blake was shot in Kenosha, she, I think this was a tweet actually, where she said, you know, people ask me, do I have hope when things like this happen? And she says, I often get the sense they're asking, are you optimistic? And she says something to the effect of, Black folk connect hope to a sense of legacy and a sense of duty, to, to use Pope Francis's term as well. And her recasting what hope means and riffing on that and saying, here's what's authentic for me, for my community, I think is exactly what you're describing here with Pope Francis is to say, we want to claim these terms for ourselves. We all need to do that in a, wherever we're coming from. But I just love thinking about hope that way. What is our legacy? What do we owe to one another? And I think what you're describing fits that quite well. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Marianne McKibben-Dana. She's a writer, pastor, speaker, and ministry coach living in Virginia. Longtime listeners will recall that we've had her on the show several times before. We're delighted to welcome her back. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Hope, a User's Manual. 
it strikes me as we're talking about all this that when we're talking about hope, in some ways we're talking about time and our relationship to time. And I'm struck by, and you said this earlier in the conversation, that you are an ordained minister in the Presbyterian tradition. The Presbyterian tradition, historically, the Reformed tradition under John Calvin, has a very awkward relationship to time because of this whole notion of predestination, the whole notion that God somehow has foreordained at least certain outcomes for certain people, depending on how you read that theological tradition. And so I guess I'm asking you, inviting you to step back and think about hope in a theological sense, hope in a way that is not merely social or political, but that actually integrates with this larger story that you've dedicated your life to as a minister in the Presbyterian Church. Well, part of my story as a Presbyterian is that my most formative years as a young person were in the Baptist Church. And I will say that one of the things, the sources of anxiety for me in that tradition was around this idea of salvation and who is saved. And I know for many, the idea that all you need to do is pray the sinner's prayer and you're in is a great comfort, right? When you've had to have that moment, you have that moment. For me, maybe it's because I was destined to be a Presbyterian. I found that full of anxiety. I remember as a young person, I accepted Christ as my personal Lord and Savior every week because I was so worried that I'd done it wrong. And I'm putting that in quotes, air quotes, the week before, or I had done something to negate it in some way. And so I think I'm one of the few folks, I have the same quibbles and difficulties with this idea of predestination and God's providence that anybody else does. But I understand why when that doctrine was first came on the scene, it could be seen as such a comfort to people that it's really not about anything we do or did we pray the sinner's prayer right or not. It's really about something that that is beyond our grasp. And yet God is reliable and a good God. I don't want to be an apologist for that doctrine, but I certainly do understand because I have felt it in my own heart. Just I don't need to do this saving work. God is good and God is holding it. And, and I think Expressing it in those kind of general terms has really been a help to me. And so in, in terms of time and how we think about God's work in the world and the theological dimensions of hope, to me, it's richer and deeper to maybe I see it as kind of a division of responsibility, if you will, that our job is to be faithful and you know, in those words of T.S. Eliot, for us, it's only the trying, the rest is not, none of our business. And that gives me a great deal of comfort to say, my job is to do the next right thing and trust that to live as if, which I may be different than trusting, but to live as if this is all going somewhere <laughs> and it's going somewhere redemptive for a world that God is reconciling the world to God's self. And I find that comforting, but also empowering. What I love about that answer, and it ties back to so much of what you've brought into our conversation, but also into your book, Hope, a User's Manual, what I love about that is that we are learning every day to be comfortable with having certain things out of our control and certain things to be okay and to have comfort in certain things being out of our control. 
Now, when I say it that way, it both seems to me profound and also really, really simplified. And so I'm wondering, have I got it right? Or would you want to say it in a more complex way? Or are there aspects of it that I've missed? This is why I invite you to respond to that. What comes to mind, and I think you've said it beautifully, but it calls to mind things that I've thought about and worked with over the years. And one, I think this is probably in the improv book, but it's certainly inflected in the hope book is the idea of the serenity prayer, which, and I know I write about my father in the most recent book, who was on a journey of recovery. He got sober when I was three years old. And so he was a part of AA until he died 20 years ago. That was very much a part of his life. And the serenity prayer, the idea of accepting what we can't change and changing what we can and having the wisdom to know the difference, that's improv in a nutshell. But I think it also is what we're describing here as hope, right, is that agency to to do what's ours to do is very clarifying. But also realizing that we are, a lot of the work we do, I mean, who was it who said anything worth doing is not going to be finished in our lifetime, right? I don't remember who said that. But there are some stories in the book about this kind of generation level work that we do. And and I, I talk about it in relation to my father. You know, he, we had a difficult relationship in a lot of ways. And yet there is nothing about our lives that would have been made any better if he had still been drinking. I mean, it, it and so the work that I do and the work that I do as a parent with my own children moves that forward, hopefully, you know, inexorably, but in its own beautiful and halting kind of way. And I just got back a few months ago, I was in Scotland. And while I was there, you know, it's hard, hard not to just immerse yourself in that kind of timelessness of that culture and remembering that the places where Christianity first came to Scotland from Ireland. And I write in the book about the site of Newgrange, which is actually in Ireland. It's this Stonehenge type of monument that was built over generations And there's a place on the day of the winter solstice where if the sun is out, which is by no means guaranteed in in Ireland, it shines in a certain way, creates a shaft of light down this hallway. But I was so struck in learning about it, how long it took to create. And we think about the great cathedrals or many of these things. It was generation level work. And that gives me a lot of hope. And I just find it that inspiring to think about what are we doing now that will outlive us? thinking about legacy, to use Austin Channing Brown's idea again, that we are here for such a short time. And what are we leaving behind that is infused with hope for the next generation? It strikes me, as we've been having this conversation, as I was reading your book, Hope, A User's Manual, one sort of guilty moment that kept coming back to me. When I was first starting out as an interviewer, I had a kind of final go-to question And I would ask my guests, what is it that keeps you hopeful? And at the time, it was a softball question. I thought, here's an easy one. And it sounds profound. What your book has helped me to realize is that there's actually nothing softball about this at all. And so instead of that reflexive softball question that I used to ask to my guests, I'd like to finish our conversation by asking what it is that keeps you grounded in this work. Where do you find your anchor, to borrow a phrase from your book, Hope? The first thing that came to mind, and I may be answering your softball question and hopefully this one at the same time, is grounded in what I do when I'm not feeling very hopeful. 
and I think I write about this in the book, the practice, what I realized, and this grew out of COVID actually, when we had these kind of days where just one day ran into the next and we were just, for many of us, endlessly at home and just waiting for what we didn't know, waiting for to flatten the curve, waiting, you know. And I realized that when I was feeling despair or when I was not feeling hopeful, when I was feeling kind of spiritually lethargic, I was usually missing at least one, but maybe more than one of three basic things. And the first thing is beauty. When I could find something beautiful outside in nature or a beautiful work of art, even if it's a, an episode of television, that made a huge difference. Beauty. The second was relationships, reaching out to someone. And the third was some kind of action. And in 2020, we had a significant presidential election and I wrote postcards. And I hope that, the, you know, we had been told by the agencies that do this, that these kinds of personal touches really make a difference and help get out the vote, which is what these were about. And I wrote hundreds of postcards that year, just encouraging people to, to cast their vote. And it felt like kind of a message in a bottle, just throwing that out there and, and hoping that it made a difference, but it also made a difference to me. And I do think we need to be good stewards of our time and be strategic in the actions that we take. But I, one or more of those things are usually out of alignment when I'm feeling some despair. So I would say those are the three things that I keep going back to that really ground me in this work. Well, Marianne McKibben, Dana, every time that you come on the show, I'm delighted because you think about things so deeply and so well, and you invite me to think with you in ways that I hadn't imagined before. So it's almost like a kind of improv between the two of us, both for me as a reader, but also in our conversations. Please keep writing and please keep coming back. I'm so grateful that you took the time to write this book on hope, and I'm so grateful that you took the time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you so much, David. It has been so much fun, and I knew it would be, and I'll catch you on the next book. We've been speaking today with Marianne McKibben Dana. She's a writer, pastor, speaker, and ministry coach living in Virginia. She's the author of God, Improv, and the Art of Living and Sabbath in the Suburbs. We've had her on the show before to talk about both of those books. Today, we've been talking about her most recent book, Hope, a User's Manual. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.